0: Man, thank you, guys. Penny of those new steps are so nice. I don't feel like I'm going to die when I'm walking on stage. Well, hopefully <laughs> did you make them or did your students make them? They're, students, oh, they're great. <laughs> Must be a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, low blows. Here we go. <laughs> Man, uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. uh, And it's always a big honor to get to preach and teach and to sit under God's word together with you. And so I'm praying that we're going to be challenged and helped and encouraged by the word this morning. We're going to actually be in Philippians 4. um, So if you want to go ahead and turn there. We're not going to be a mark. If you need a Bible, uh, you forgot yours, you don't have one, if you just raise your hand, our ushers would be happy to let you borrow a copy here. Um, just keep your hand up, and they'll find you. And I also want to say, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to keep this one um, as our gift to you. Uh, we recently, in my the microchurch that I'm a part of, we, we actually read through Philippians together, uh, kind of slowly over several weeks. And the passage that we're looking at this morning... Uh, sparked a lot of discussion uh, one night. And so uh, that's, that's what popped to mind as I was preparing and thinking about this, is how good this book was to us. And I just got to say, guys, sometimes like the older I get, um, the more kind of introverted and cranky I get in some ways. I don't know if that's happened to any of the rest of you. Uh, but there are there are times like on Wednesday, we go to all morning staff meeting, and then we usually eat together here. And usually I'm rushed around in the afternoon to do just like a couple tasks, and then it's, it's time for our microchurch. And sometimes I'm like, man, I really just want to go watch YouTube. Like, I just want to be by myself, you know. And, uh, but I, I don't do that, can't, especially can't do that because I'm a pastor, right? But I'm, I'm never, after I, I gather with these people that are my family, I'm always so glad that I did. And as I was thinking about it, our, our microchurch is one of the bigger blessings in my life right now. Just to have good family uh, who you can laugh with and cry with, and that you know that they're praying for you and you're praying for them, and and over half of half of the people in our MC, I didn't even know like a year ago, or I maybe knew I'm like this much, and so it's just amazing. Uh, I'm kind of plugging the own, my own ministry here, but but it really is truly just amazing to be a part of that. And I want to encourage you if you're not plugged into an MC. Um, Figure out how to do that. If, if there's some trouble along the way, come, come talk to me, because I'd love to help plug you in, because it's so important in just living out the faith in a regular way. Uh, so anyway, that's all my caveat to MCs. Uh But Philippians 4, and uh, we're going to begin reading at verse 2 in just a second, but let me give you a little bit of background about this book, uh, just in case it's been a while or it's not familiar to you. But uh, the Apostle Paul went on several missionary journeys, and on his second one, he planted the church in Philippi. So um, if you remember right before this journey began, the second one, he and uh, Barnabas had been co-laborers together. And they kind of split. They kind of went different ways. They had a disagreement. And they ended up going different ways. And so Paul brought along Titus, and eventually he met Timothy on this journey. And there was one point in the journey where he didn't really know what to do next. He's kind of like, all right, God, where do I need to go? And he kept trying to go places, and God kind of kept heading him off the path and going, nope, not there, not there, not there. And then eventually the Holy Spirit led him to Philippi. And if you remember in the planting of this church, it's very memorable. He first meets a woman named Lydia, who's a seller of purple fabric, which was an expensive fabric. So it'd be like selling silk or cashmere or something like that. So she was probably a pretty well-to-do lady. You could maybe think of her as a fashionista. She's part of this church. And then uh, later, Paul casts um, uh, a demon out of this uh, slave girl who was fortune-telling with the powers of uh, the demon. And her owners get really mad when she can no longer do that because she was annoying Paul. And he said, let's get that demon out of there. And so she's likely a part of this church, but then they were jailed because of that. And so Paul and Silas are in the jail singing, you remember, in the middle of the night to God, not really worried about being in jail. And the earthquake happens. And they could have escaped, but they felt led not to escape, just to stay put. And then the Philippian jailers really wigged out by that. Like, why why didn't you guys take off? And he's like, I'm... There's some other people that have escaped, and they're going to kill me because I was in charge, and now these people escaped. I'm going to kill myself, so he's a bit suicidal. And they stop him, and they lead him to faith in Jesus. So he's probably part of this church. and this is, So this is a really diverse church, right, made up of at least those people and some more people that we don't know. They're not named in Scripture. And Paul loves this church. You can tell all over this letter. This is, this is the, the book of joy. And Paul is overjoyed as he thinks of Jesus and as he thinks of these people. And he probably wrote this letter near the end of his life when he was imprisoned in Rome. It's often called a prison epistle. So near the end of the apostle Paul's life, he appealed to Caesar to the highest court in the land to fight a charge that was against him for preaching Jesus. And he ended up on house arrest in Rome for two years. And that's probably where he wrote this back to this church that he had planted years before. And so these are his words. So if you will, go ahead and join with me in verse two. So Philippians four, verse two. Here's what it says. These are weird words, these first two ladies' names. And I think I got the pronunciation correct, but if I don't, just forgive me. But he says, I entreat Euodia. And I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, Let's pray together, and we'll study it. Father, I need in this moment, and we all need, a fresh reminder of your reality. A fresh reminder of the power of Jesus' death and resurrection in our lives. A fresh reminder of the Holy Spirit's presence with us right here, right now. His ability to empower and change us, and to make the gospel flow into every part of our lives. And so we ask for help. We ask that these words would speak to us in a way that would transform us and not just allow us to play church this morning, but to change, to feel our hearts soften towards you, to feel our minds lean towards you. And so we just pray all those things this morning. Father, help us as we study the scriptures. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Philippian church was dealing with conflict. Not a big conflict, it doesn't seem, but important enough that Paul brings it up. You can almost read this first verse and miss it, right? But Paul says in verse 2, in a letter that's been preserved for us for all time, I entreat... Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They're having a disagreement, and he even asked somebody here, this true companion, and he said, yet I also ask you, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. But they're having a disagreement. There's a philosopher, writer, I don't know much about him, but his name is... Nassim uh, Nicholas Tlaib, and he wrote a book called Anti-Fragile, How to Live in a World We Don't Understand. And in this book, Tlaib uh, breaks everything, like people, systems, organizations. He he puts them into three categories. He says there are are fragile things, and there are robust things, and there are anti-fragile things, which is kind of a new category. I think he created it. But here's how he defines those three ideas. He says, he says, fragile things are things that when stress or conflict come upon that system or that person or that family, they, they fall apart. Things shatter, things break, things are never the same. Those are fragile systems and organizations. They're also robust systems or organizations. And robust systems or organizations are those that when they face conflict and stress, they, they survive. They get through it. They make it out the other end. They continue to exist. But Talib argues there are also anti-fragile organizations, systems, families, businesses. And he says anti-fragile things are those which become stronger as a result of the stress or resistance. Or conflict that they encounter. They don't merely survive conflict. They grow as a result of the conflict. That's a very compelling idea. Our bones and muscles kind of work this way, right? If your bones and muscles don't have a certain amount of resistance put on them, they don't work correctly. My wife has had two ACL surgeries, and her first one, her second one, was done beautifully. Uh, by Vanderbilt's team doctor. Uh, So you know she was in rehab immediately, and it healed great, and she didn't even really have pain with that one. But her first one was done by a lesser doctor, who shall remain nameless because I don't know his name anyway. Um, But uh, she didn't start rehab for a long time. Uh, She didn't have the surgery for a long time. She was in this big, huge leg brace. And it was so bad that when she finally started to... um, begin rehab, they had, to, they had to shock her muscles, which she said was very painful, to even get them to kind of like start working again so that she could begin to heal from this thing because our bones and our muscles are made in such a way that if they don't have any resistance, we're actually weak. They actually need some stress to make them work correctly. A classic case of anti-fragile. It would be beautiful, and we stand the potential... For our church and our micro churches and our volunteers and all that, for this for this to be anti fragile. Not just robust where we survive and we lose a few people along the way and they're out not fragile to where the whole thing combusts because of some stress or some conflict, but anti-fragile where it's hard and there's conflict and it's not always comfortable, but but we actually grow and become a better church, organization, family of believers together as a result of the conflict that's happened because the conflict's coming, and it's not always a bad thing. Here's a an amazing quote by Jeff Vanderstelt, who Helped me with a lot of this idea. And Jeff says this he says, Conflict is not necessarily bad. In fact, no real change or development in growth will happen without some conflict. It's absolutely, it's just absolutely necessary for sinful people living in close proximity with one another to experience conflict because conflict is the evidence that either there's still something wrong with me or there's still something wrong with us and it needs to be addressed. And the beauty about conflict is that it brings that to the surface. It makes it really visible. Oh yeah, we're still screwed up people. We're not perfect. And if we're devoted, this is key too, if we're devoted to helping each other grow up into Christ-likeness, then we're going to expect, or we should expect, conflict. So let's look again at Euodia and Sentuke a little bit closer. Their names, uh, this is helpful or funny to me, the, the meaning of their names roughly translated is Euodia's success, so it's a lady named success, and Sentuke, her name means lucky, so success and lucky two ladies in the church and they're having a disagreement right? <laughs> and and he, a couple things just to notice real quick. Um, they're both Christian women because he says again, I entreat you audience K to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored with listen to how he describes them. They've labored with me side by side in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he has no doubt that these women know the Lord. In fact, they're they're people that he knows very well. So the, these are two women in the church. Their names are written in the book of life. They're believers. They probably are leaders, whether they've been given a title or they've just... Been in the church a long time and they're well respected and looked to. They're probably leaders of some sort because everybody kind of knows who they are. Again, they were Paul's co-laborers. So these are important women in this church. Okay. And the degree and uh, the disagreement we can kind of surmise is probably not doctrinal. Because anytime there's a major doctrinal issue. Uh, a heretical issue. Someone sneaking in trying to lead away the flock. Paul immediately addresses it. He doesn't mess around with those stuff. He, he, he goes so far in Galatians to say that if an angel or even himself later on coming back or, or some other teacher were to teach a gospel contrary to the, the gospel that he had originally preached. In other words, if anybody comes in and says anything different about how you're saved and who Jesus is and what he's done, he goes so far as to say, let that person be accursed. Or damned. So when it when it comes to doctrinal issues, Paul is real quick to clear it up and say, "This is the word of the Lord." This is probably not a doctrinal issue because he doesn't he didn't even take a side. Also, notice this, and it's real evident in the Greek, but it's also in most of the English translations. He he doesn't really take a side, right? He says, "I entreat Euodia comma. I entreat Sintuke. He doesn't say, I entreat Yodi and Sintuke. He says, I entreat you, and I entreat you. He's being very careful to not take a side. Again, because it's probably not doctrinal. He loves both these women, and he says, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. He doesn't take a specific side. But this was important enough that Paul, again, wrote it in an epistle that is the word of God. It's part of our Bible. He thought it important enough to bring it up in front of the whole church. And they've got this disagreement, which means that it probably had the potential, though it was not the most important thing in the world, to divide the church or to hurt the church. And he says, I want these two women to agree in the Lord. And notice that true. I entreat Yodia and I entreat sintuke to get along. No, to agree in the Lord. Because sometimes when there's a disagreement, sometimes it's just like, "Ah, eh, we're both being stupid. <laughs> Let's move on. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're sorry. Cool, we're good. But sometimes there's something more serious and we need some help. And he says he says, I agree, or I, I appeal to Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In other words, bring him into this. Seek out the help of God and Father, the creator of all things, and ask him to help you. And you guys labor with this and agree in the Lord. Uh, John Piper I was, as I was preparing for this, I was listening to a sermon. He um, spoke about this passage, and he said he was in a um, he was in a denominational meeting, and uh, they were trying to plan this, like, prayer initiative for his whole denomination. And he said, like, you know, they prayed at the beginning, and then they got down to, like, brainstorming and trying to figure out, like, we want to do this huge prayer initiative, and we want to roll it out this way, and they had all these ideas, and it's going pretty well, and then all of a sudden, they just, they just kind of ground to a halt. He said like four hours in, they couldn't figure out, do we need to do this, or do we need to do this, or are we way off here, and we need to do this, and, and they were just kind of all talking over each other, and brainstorming had kind of just become worthless, and they were frustrated, and kind of like, what, what do we need to do? We don't know. And he said that the leader of the denomination who was there just said, let's, let's just pause for a minute and pray. They had already prayed. Let's pray again. They said they paused for just a few minutes. And in those few minutes, God just kind of to everybody's mind, just real quickly was kind of like, that's what you need to do. They couldn't figure it out on their own. They sought God's help again and said, we give us direction. And he helped them. And sometimes in our church, or in your micro church, there's going to be a disagreement. That's going to be tough. And it has the potential to split the whole thing. And it may not even be that important of an issue. But it's gotten serious. And we need to reconcile. And we need God's help to do it. And we're not going to do it in our own power. That's what's going on here. Um, disagreement in the church. I also want you to see um, that we're to come alongside and help those who disagree, right? So sometimes you're not involved in the conflict, but as a believer in Christ, you're call, sometimes you stick your nose into something that's not your own business. I'm not talking about that, but you know, there's people that love, love fighting. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about you're going, there's something going on and I feel like God's telling me I need to and, and look at what he says to this true companion. Verse 3, yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So he he calls on somebody. He doesn't tell you who this is, and I read a lot of backstory on this. Some people are like, ah, he's talking about Timothy, you know, or he's talking to Epaphroditus because he was... and. It actually doesn't make sense. That it's those guys. If you actually dig down, it probably is Luke. When you're reading Acts, Luke wrote Acts. And all of a sudden, in this part of Luke, he, he like the first half of Acts, Luke is, is telling the story based on everything he's heard about what Paul did and what happened in the early church. And then I think it's in chapter 16, he all of a sudden switches to we because you know he's like along with Paul for the journey. And so we know Luke was at this. Church in Philippi, and so probably this unnamed true companion here is Luke, who wrote Acts, and i am guessing—we can't absolutely prove it. That there's a lot of good reasons to believe that, but I'm going to guess that it's Luke. And he says, "You know, yes, I also ask you, Luke, help these women who have labored side by side with me." So, what what would it look like? This is what I begin asking myself: What would it look like for us to come alongside a situation, maybe where there's a disagreement? or there's a bit of a conflict, and to help in a, in a good way, in a godly way. And, and so these just came out of the Bible, but Ben's head. You know, I just kind of made a list. This doesn't come from the Scripture. This is just my thoughts, okay, um, and Jeff Vanderstelt's thoughts, uh, some of them. Um, but the first thing is that we just need to pray for the situation. Even, even Jesus prayed this way right before he died. He, said, he says in John 17, He says, uh, Father, I don't ask for my disciples only, but he actually prays for us. And he says, uh, I don't ask for these only, but also pray for those who will believe in me through their words. So Jesus in John 17 actually prays for us because we've believed in him through the, the disciples' words and their disciples and their disciples. You know what I mean? And so he's praying for us. And he says, listen to what Jesus prays. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for all who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that that you have given me, I have given to them, that they also may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. You see this? Jesus actually says that our unity, our oneness, is a sign to the world that we know him. And he actually prays that our unity would be unity of such a sort that it would be like the unity that he has with the Father and the Spirit. So he says, the way that, Father, the way that I love you and you love me and the Spirit loves us and we love the Spirit, that that tri-unity, that dance from all of eternity between us, this this tri-unity, I want that unity to be between my people. I want them to love each other the way that we love each other and I want us, we we do love them and I want them to love us in that way. I want that sort of love and unity to be going on because when that happens, anybody who looks in from the outside watching world who doesn't yet know us will go, whoa, something weird and unique is going on there. Something godly, something supernatural is going on in that situation because of the unity they have. I think And man, am I glad this is the case because I screw up a lot and I'm not always the best at unity and I make everybody mad but I don't even mean to. Um, And that's not an excuse. Like I hate that about myself and I really do. But one of the best pictures to the watching world that something is different about us is when we repent easily. We've screwed up and we own it, not in a, like, hey, get the light off me. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm sorry. But, like, in a true, like, heartbroken, like, I offended you. I hurt you. I did wrong here. I know it was wrong. I offended a holy God. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? When we repent like that, when we reconcile like that, when we're not known as, like, Facebook Nazis, I think the world pays attention. I think the world knows that there's something different about us. We should pray for unity. That's the first thing. Here's the, I'm going to start moving faster. Here's the second thing that we, how do we help those who are in conflict? We pray for the situation. Secondly, we, we help them see that it's important. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So he says, if you have traveled 10 miles to Jerusalem to offer your sacrifice of a ram on the altar and you're there for the week to to be forgiven of sin, this is how it used to work, and to worship God there. If you've, if you've put in all this time and money and you've come and you're about to offer your sacrifice and ask for forgiveness for your sin and then you remember, this brother has a problem with me. He says, stop what you're doing. Walk back out of the temple. Go back home 10 miles, a day's journey. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and offer your altar. Jesus, in essence, says, go to great lengths to be reconciled. Now, you may be going, "Oh, Ben, like, what if they don't accept the reconciliation? And that, that's, a, that's a real possibility. Like, if you're in a situation where you've wronged somebody and you've realized that you've wronged them and you have repented to God and then you have felt the need to go make reconciliation with them and you go and you repent and you apologize and you ask for their forgiveness... And, and they refuse to receive it, at that point, it is on them because you've been forgiven by Jesus and you've been truthful in how you've attempted to be reconciled, and you can walk away with maybe still some burden on your heart because you're not completely reconciled to your, your brother, but having known that you've done everything that you can do. And... Us dealing with this reconciliation thing is important. That's the second thing, is we need to know this is important. If it means we travel 10 miles, if it means we leave what we're in the middle of, and it takes a couple days, and we have to go like, fix this issue, then we're attempting to fix it. Second thing. Uh, thirdly, we need to be willing to involve ourselves in the conflict in an impartial way. Again, the conflict doesn't res- it's, it's between Bob and Joe, and I'm Ben. And God is leading me to help Bob and Joe reconcile. But I'm not in the conflict. I, I mean, so I'm praying for them. I'm, help, I'm, I'm trying to help them see, hey, guys, this is, this is hurting our MC. Like, you guys got to reconcile. And then the next step is I'm, I'm willing to involve myself in the conflict. And I really don't want to. But I realize the Spirit's leading me to do it. And so I'm going to involve myself in this in some impartial way the way that Paul did. I'm not taking a side, but I'm realizing what, what Jesus said in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Did every charge... So like you notice how if the two can't resolve it, Jesus says, go get a couple folks and involve them in the conflict as impartial people to help resolve this thing. Some of us just hate conflict so much that the idea of involving ourselves in somebody else's conflict, even if we felt like the Holy Spirit was asking us to do it, we're like, I'm out. That's not me. I'm at, no, 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 no. That's their issue. They're having an issue. This doesn't involve me. This has not been drama. I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And the Spirit's going, no, 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 no. You're my disciple, and I'm telling you, they're not getting to any sort of reconciliation, and it's hurting my church, and you're part of my church, and you're my beloved son, and you need to jump in there and help these folks reconcile in an impartial way. Are you willing to do that? No? No? <laughs> So, sometimes we don't know what to do, right? Like we. I recently preached this sermon in another church. They were going through Philippians, and I got the passage, and that's how this came to be. And then I felt like God was telling me to preach it again this morning here. But when I was recently preparing this, I just come through this situation where Chris and I had a bit of a conflict, right? And Chris is one of my best friends ever. Like I've known him now for. I don't even know how long, way before 24. And uh, he had, unbeknownst to him, said a couple things that had offended me. And they were just kind of gnawing on me, right? And I kept going through this, and maybe you need to go through this in your mind sometimes. Because sometimes I'm not always sure. Like, but I, I was going through this situation where I was like, am I just being a baby? Like, do I just need to like grow up and get over it? Like, it's probably no big deal. Or like, do I need to chat it out with him? And, and as I sought God's help, I felt like the Spirit was saying, like, you need to address this issue. And it was two, like, super minor things. And when I finally brought it up with Chris, he didn't even know that he had offended me. Like, it was, it was that small of a conflict, right? It wasn't like this major blow-up where we both, you know, he would not be cussing, but I would be the one that was cussing, you know. Be like, ah, you know, that would be how it would go. I have a bit of repetition, trying to change. You know, but, but it was nothing like that. It was like there was just some angst there and he could feel the angst, but he didn't know where it was coming from. But the angst for me was like he had offended me a couple times and, and I was going through this like, do I need to bring this up or not? And finally, the spirit led me to like bring it up. And so we just right after staff meeting one day, I was like, hey, can I talk to you for a few minutes? And I just brought up, hey, this happened and this happened and it really offended me. And he was like, I don't even remember that stuff happening, but I am so sorry. And immediately, wait, just gone. Like we addressed it, it's gone. All is forgiven. It was like, the only reason I'm even thinking about it now is because I wrote about it in the sermon. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't even remember that this had happened. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. And so sometimes we're asking like, we, we want that to happen for other people and they need help. And so we insert ourselves in that situation and go, guys, let's, let's ask God for help, and let's get, get somewhere on this. But we have to realize that both um, you're naturally either like you love kind of conflict and confrontation, and you're kind of that person. You're like, ain't nobody going to throw down on me. like God. You know, and you're like, you're like, you know, Facebook warrior. You know, you're, you're that person, and you, you kind of like the drama, and you like to be right, and that's kind of me, unfortunately. You know, you're either that person, or you're like, no, 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 no. I don't want any conflict. But both of those can be bad. If you're an over-confronter, you're probably very prone to pride. And so you need to really ask yourself, like, do I need to be in this situation or am I just being prideful? And I love to be right. And I love conflict because I can usually talk better than the other people. And so I'm going to show everybody I'm smarter than them. And then they're going to feel stupid and I'm going to feel justified. You know, like, you need that's not good. But that... If if you avoid conflict at all costs, that can be like a bad thing, too, because sometimes you need to involve yourself in the conflict because it's an important issue. And if you're really so scared of conflict that you never run to it, run into it, never involve yourself in it, it could be that other people's opinion of you matters so much that it's an idol in your life and you can't stand the thought of anybody being just a little bit angry with you, because what if they don't like me anymore? And then I'm not going to feel as good about myself. And so when we're dealing with this stuff, when we're involving ourselves in it, we need to ask ourselves, what's my tendency? Do I love conflict? Do I hate conflict? And how can can God bring a corrective to that? To where I'm not running into it willy-nilly, but I'm also not avoiding it at all costs, and I'm willing to be involved in it if I need to be. Because I realize... There's things that have to be dealt with sometimes. Here's the fourth thing for how we can come alongside and help in conflict. We we can refuse to be gossips. So conflict happens, and if you're like me, my first tendency is to go, Megan, you won't believe what happened. I'm not talking to God about it. I'm not trying to like help in the conflict. I'm like, let me tell my wife how stupid this other person is, you know, and I'm just or or. And then I'm going to pull in like seven other people like all my best friends like you wouldn't believe what happened today. Hey, you know, you know, and I'm pulling in all these people I'm trying to make myself look good or I'm trying to make this other person look stupid. And that's not godly at all. If we're actually going to step in and help conflict, we have to refuse to be gossips, which means that at times we may have to do this. Somebody comes to tell us something and we softly, calmly shut them down and go, have you talked to Bob about this? Like, I know you just had a spat, but like, are y'all, y'all trying to work this out? I'm just going to, I'm just, people get mad at you when you shut down their gossip. You know. But sometimes, sometimes we got to go like, It's not going to be through me. And in fact, like as lovingly as I can, I'm going to say. First, go to your brother, just you two. And be reconciled like I don't need to be involved in this. Y'all can just figure this out. That's another way that we help. Okay, now I want us to look. So that's just some good stuff, right? Um, the, The rest of this passage rejoice in the Lord let's let's just read it again verses 47 here's where Paul pivots he says this he says rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice let your reasonableness reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's how I think those, ver- Paul's at the end of the letter, is given short, quick reminder commands. But in the whole letter, he's, he's already demonstrated to us how we're to follow the pattern of Christ, who made himself nothing and gave his life so that we could be reconciled to God. And he's calling us to a similar sort of pattern. And when he's giving us these short little reminders at the end, here's what I think he's doing. I think he's describing a sort of lifestyle that if we embraced rejoice always, be reasonable, remember God is near, don't be anxious, pray. If we remember these things, then we're prepared to not be constantly involved in unnecessary conflict. So it reminds me of the karate kid, right? The first one. You know, son is having to do all this weird stuff by Miyagi. He's painting the fence. He's like, why in the heck am I painting this guy's fence? Wax on, wax off. Like, why am I waxing this guy's car? He doesn't know he's learning karate. He doesn't know that he's repeating all these things so that when he gets in a fight, he. And maybe it's all stupid 80s movie, but whatever. Like, that's the point, right? Like, is that. He's learning how to block, you know, (laughs) by all these repetitive commands. And and guys, we're learning when we rejoice always, pray, put on reasonableness. When we do all these things regularly, when when that's how our lives are described, what we're doing is preparing ourselves to not be involved in unnecessary conflict. Let me go through them real quickly with you, and we'll close. But the first one, rejoice always. I mean, if you're really happy in Jesus, if your heart is just filled with joy because of him, it's hard to be involved constantly in the latest drama. It's hard to be angry all the time if you're happy in Christ. You know, it's, it's like this. You're at work, and you're about to head to the beach. And all day long that day at work there's just all kinds of drama going on. This coworker's mad at this coworker, this coworker's mad at this coworker, boss is being a jerk, and you're very tempted to kind of involve yourself in the conflict. But you don't you don't need to. And more importantly, you're heading to Destin when you get off work. And you're like, I ain't got time for this nonsense. Like I'm not going to involve myself unnecessarily in this conflict. I'm going to the beach. And we remember that. We rejoice in the greater joy Jesus. We go, Jesus is so good. I ain't got time to be involved in all your stupid Facebook drama. I love Jesus. He's changed my life and my heart. He's much more important and much more fabulous than whatever nonsense y'all are messing with. It reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quote where he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex, and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased because there's something that can please us that's much greater. And so we go, I got bigger joys and greater satisfaction than this. So I'm not involving myself in that unless God leads me to be. Secondly, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5, let your reasonableness, or you could say, your kindness or your tolerance be known to everybody. And so we just say, I'm gonna, I'm fighting with the Holy Spirit's help to be known as a person who's regularly reasonable, not unreasonable. That's hard. That's not me oftentimes. But Paul says, put it on. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, which is yours in Christ. So you're in Christ. So it's yours. This mind is yours. If you know Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So I'm going to be reasonable with the Holy Spirit's help because that's mine in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness you know to everyone. The Lord's at hand. Thirdly, remember that God is near. What does that mean? It just means that like wherever I go, God's with me. And his coming is also near. He's coming again one day, and he's going to set all things right. So I don't have to immediately justify myself in every situation. I don't have to always be right. I don't have to always prove that I'm the smartest. I don't have to always win every argument. Why? Because the Lord is near and he knows what's up. And he's going to empower me to not be that jerk all the time. And, and secondly, I know that if I really am right and I really have been wrong, that he's going to set things right at the end of the day. Because he's the judge. Only God can judge me. Yeah, so God's going to judge. And he's going to figure it out. In some places, you've been deeply wounded or hurt, and you can't fix the situation, and your only hope is just to rest on Jesus and go, things will be made right one day. But I don't need to do it. He's going to do it. So I can rest in that and move on. And then fourthly, we pray. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what happens? So we we pray about all things. We pray without ceasing. We go, God, I need help in this situation. I don't know what to do. I'm so angry. (laughs) About to tweet this out. (laughs) Delete the tweet. (laughs) Not going to do it. You're going to fix it. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is promise of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're basically doing this. Ephesians 4:15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the definition of anti-fragility. Praying that we would be an anti-fragile church that speaks the truth in love, that's seeking to grow up into Christ and that becomes good at speaking gospel to one another in such a way that we build one another up in love. So that when the inevitable conflict comes, because it will come, it doesn't tear us apart, but because we're committed to speaking gospel truth to one another, speaking love to one another, it actually makes us stronger It's hard. It's uncomfortable. We don't want to do it willy-nilly. But when it comes, we're committed to the good of other people and to loving them the way that we've been loved by Christ and to helping the body build itself up in love. And all of this is ultimately a gospel issue, right? I've often... And this is hard for every one of us. But I've been asked before, like, how do I forgive such and such a person? And some of us, many of us, have been deeply, deeply wounded. We've been hurt in ways that are, you don't even want to say it out loud by other people. And we go, and Christianity, like the gospel, the Bible is calling me to forgive everyone. Like, How do I do that? That seems impossible. The gospel is the only way that we can be free to do that. How? Because when we realize that we are sinful, discontented, screwed up people, and we have offended a holy God. In fact, Ephesians describes this this way. You are dead, This is us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all once walked, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by, natural, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we were outside of Christ. And then he, through no good in us, not because he liked like us, just, he just said, I'm going to love these people. He forgave us extravagantly. The rest of the passage says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even we were still raising, railing against God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He said, why don't you come sit with my son on the throne next day? You're with him. That's you were dead and disobedient and rebellious and sinful and never happy. And I'm That's who you were, but in Christ, by faith, I'm making you something different, and you sit with my son. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. So when someone has offended us grievously, we remember we have offended God grievously and been loved anyway, adopted into the family. And with the Holy Spirit's help, we can say, if I've been loved and forgiven in that way, how could I also not, with God's help, try to forgive those who have offended me? And that's absolutely, uh, we need God's help. And you may be saying, I don't, been like, this person abused me. Like, I don't, how? I'm not ever saying run back in to be abused, but like, but I'm still like, I'm way far, like, how am I? And I'm just saying, With God's help, when you meditate on your own screwed upness and you meditate on the grace that's been shown to you, you can begin to go, I'm no better. And I've been loved so amazingly. And so God help me. That's a supernatural thing. And I'm on the authority of God's word calling us to it. couple questions as we close. Is there disagreement or conflict right now that you're in some way involved with? If so, is God leading you to do something about it? When conflict arises, different question, and it doesn't involve you, are you committed to helping others deal with the conflict in a godly manner? Thirdly, just kind of check your heart. Do you run towards conflict or do you run away from conflict? And what does that say about how God needs to help you? Fourthly, do you regularly build up your heart to avoid unnecessary conflict by rejoicing in Jesus, seeking to be reasonable, remembering that God is near and sees everything, and by praying? Fifthly, I think, are you a gossip? And then lastly, everything I'm talking about. I'm assuming that I'm speaking to believers. But maybe you're here today and you're not yet a believer, not yet a follower of Jesus. And what I'm talking about sounds preposterous and stupid or maybe good. But you're like, let me just tell you, if you don't if Christ doesn't live inside your heart, if you haven't yet been forgiven, it's impossible. And so my last question is this, is have you ever accepted Jesus into your heart? Have you been forgiven of the weight of sin, of the weight of the debt that's against you? Rightly, because you've done a lot of stupid things and you've offended a holy God. And you're under his wrath. But at the same time, he's going, but I sent myself. God, Jesus came to earth and died so that you could be forgiven. And I love you so much. And if you'll accept me into your life, if you'll believe in me, you can be gloriously forgiven. So I want to end with that question. Have you ever been gloriously forgiven by Jesus? If you haven't, Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's the boss, the ruler, the owner, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And you can come into relationship with him. For the very first time today, and be forgiven, and know love indescribable. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard, helpful, impossible without your help challenge. But Lord, would you just move powerfully in our hearts and just help all kinds of healing to take place in these next few moments? God, as we reflect and respond, help us to be willing to do whatever you're calling us to do. And Father, if there's anyone here today and they don't know you, I pray that you would quadruple down on drawing them to yourself right now. And just making it so evident that you're real and that you love them and that forgiveness is free and waiting if they'll accept it by faith. Would you not, Not. we don't want that conviction because it's hard. We want it because it leads to joy and forgiveness and relationship with you. And so would you draw people right now? Help us, Jesus.